This is episode number 10 with health psychologist, Dr. Justin Ross. Welcome back to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fitzgerald, and it's my job to make you a better runner. Whether that's interviewing an elite Olympian, a world-renowned coach, or even letting you listen over my shoulder as I coach another runner, this podcast is here to make you faster, stronger, more disciplined, attractive, and even more mentally tough. I think only four of those are right, but we're going to keep moving on. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Justin Ross, a Denver health psychologist who focuses on sports and performance psychology, among other specialties like stress reduction and pain management. He's also a triathlete, Boston qualifying marathoner, and a founder of Mind Body Health, a Denver area integrative health psychology and counseling center. And we talk about a lot, everything from managing anxiety before a race to practical strategies for both increasing and decreasing arousal around key performances. But we also get into behavioral change. In other words, how do you change specific behaviors, like say waking up earlier, that make running just a lot easier? Finally, I share a lot of my own running stories and we play a good game of role reversal where he interviews me about my inner self-talk and why in the world we chanted grimace before high school cross-country races. The reason is not entirely legal, but you'll have to hear that story yourself. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Justin Ross. Justin, I'm excited to speak with you because your area of expertise, I don't think gets the attention that I think it deserves. Everyone, you know, we read about long runs and strength exercises and injury prevention, but how often do we learn about strengthening the most important muscle that I think we all have, which is our brain? I think you're, you're absolutely right. I, I think uh, we spend so much time talking about, uh, you know, distance and mileage and strength training and, and nutrition and all those things are super important, but um, yeah, mindset stuff, sports psychology, mental toughness. It's also it's a huge factor in one in, in enjoying the sport, but in uh, in two having success. Yeah, and what is the saying? It's ninety nine percent of running is physical, and the other half is mental. Yeah, yeah. So Yogi Berra, right, the old New York Yankee, had this great quote, and um, he said, you know, ninety uh, percent of baseball is half mental, right? And I think <laughs> oh, that there it is. Yeah, it really applies, I think, to any sport, right? So much of uh, athletics is is in the mind. Right, and, and I think, too, the, the further along you get in your running journey, and really with any sport, not just running, but the further along you get and the better you get as you continually improve over time, the more important, I think, the mental side of things really gets. You know, the d- difference in performance – among all of the elite marathoners at the Olympics is is much smaller than most people think. What what is really, uh, I think, a big difference between a lot of those competitors is those competitors that have the drive and the willingness to push themselves, and that is, I think, the the essence of uh, being mentally tough and knowing your your brain and really really using sports psychology to to your advantage. So this is all really fascinating stuff. I've always been intrigued by it. And let's start with your work. What do you, Justin, what do you actually do on a daily basis with runners? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So I am trained as a clinical psychologist with a specialty focus in, in health and wellness, 
and sports and performance. So I have a private practice here in Denver um, called Mind Body Health, where all of our work is is centered on those things. So we do see a fair amount of people who are non-athletes who are, um, you know, just working on improving their health and their wellness or struggling with some type of health uh, condition or, or concern. Um, but the athletes that I work with really do vary. I see a lot of people who are, you know, they, I just consider them like like everyday people like like you and I, right? These are people with jobs and with families and with full life commitments, but are also looking to improve in um, in their, their sport choice, which I end up seeing a ton of endurance folks, a lot of runners and a lot of triathletes. Um, and then I do see a fair amount of uh, elite caliber athletes, um, professionals and Olympians as well. And, and everything I talk about with the weekend warriors is pretty much the same thing I talk about with the elites. Only the elites are fighting for a paycheck and, and trying to pay their mortgage with this stuff. So it the um, the seriousness for them is um, it's a little bit more uh, intense, but what we end up talking a lot about is um, you know these things right how do you how do you stay competitive how do you get the most out of yourself how do you find that that rhythm to push yourself so that you can reach your goals whatever those goals may be whether that's you know winning an Olympic medal or qualifying for Boston or just running your first five k. Well, one of the things that I've always tried to impress upon my readers and my listeners is that good training is really universal. You know, there are certain training truths that we, I guess we can call them that apply not only to elites, but really to everyone. So we can look at, you know, the fact that elite marathoners run really high mileage. And of course, I'm not going to make a recreational runner run 125 miles a week. That's just kind of crazy. But right. the lesson is high mileage is important. And so if some runner is running 25 miles a week, I'm going to try to make them run more because that principle is the same. And mm -hmm. those principles really cross the divide between recreational runners and elite runners. And, and what I'm hearing you say, Justin, is that, you know, these elite runners that you're talking with have a lot of the same uh, uh, issues and, and goals that uh, recreational runners do, except they're, they're doing it for money and at a higher level, but the mm -hmm. actual issues are exactly the same. And I think that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, uh, a lot of people ask me what I do. And when I say I'm a sports psychologist, they, they get interested and, and they're like, well, what is that? What, what do you do? And the, one of the things I always say is like, look, if, if you have a mind, and, and you like sports, you qualify for this kind of work, right? It's our minds are, are all very much the same. And so it's about paying attention, being aware and using principles um, that are that are thought based, that are uh, motion based in, in order to be successful in sport. And yeah, again, that it goes for elites and it goes for people who are just running recreationally. Yeah, I always find it funny that some runners will spend, you know, an hour a day exercising their their muscles, but leading up to a big race, you know, they won't think, you know, at all about training their brain to deal with the rigors of say a very difficult marathon or kind of the, you know, searing pressure of a really fast 5k. Uh, I think, you know, we focus a lot on the physical, but the mental is uh, just as important and it, it is really essential to actually achieving what your uh, potential might be in the sport of running. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's uh, what it's about, right? It's, um, it's about understanding your own 
mental process, whatever that may be, um, at, because what you do in training is going to be exactly what you do in a race situation. And if you aren't mentally prepared to handle the rigors of a, of a really fast pace in training, there's no way you're going to be prepared to handle the rigors of that come race day. And so I think you're right. The, you know, the physical training is, is clearly really important in this sport, but so too is the, the mental training that needs to coincide um, a training block. Absolutely. Um, now let's do some role playing. Let's say I'm yeah. a runner. I am really interested in in bringing my my a mental game to my next goal race. And uh, I come into your office and we're going to sit down together for our first appointment. What what's next? What do we talk about? Where do we go from there? Yeah, good good question. So the first thing for me is always getting a you know a good clear understanding of your history and of your current goals. And, um, you know, people who have been running for a while, like you're, like yourself, who you have a solid history, you have, uh, you know, your experience in races, you're going to differ in terms of the work that I do, um, than somebody who comes in and who's a new runner who just started running and has the goal of qualifying for Boston in their first marathon ever, right? So it depends on that. A lot of times I see people come in and their goals just, they're not quite, lined up for success yet. And so that would be the first step is kind of making sure that the goals are aligned. The people who come in like, like yourself, who have a good training background and have been successful in the sport, then we really start to dive into the specific goals. What are you trying to do? What are the targets? Um, and how do you handle pressure? How do you handle discomfort? What are the mental strategies that you're already using? Because the truth is we're already using some type of mental strategy to be successful, a lot of times we just don't know what that is. So we talk about that, and then we really talk about barriers. You know, when is it in a race or um, in a training cycle that you start to feel, um, you know, inadequate or you start to feel like you're not able to keep up the pace or sustain something? What are the barriers that you that you connect to that we can work on? So the first session and sometimes the first couple sessions are really just about gathering that information Information, making sure we're on the same page so that we can tackle the work and, and kind of dive into specific strategies that align with success. You mentioned mental strategies. And mm -hmm. can you talk about some of those mental strategies that some runners may already be using but don't really know that they're actually using them in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the first thing I always think about and talk about is just this idea of self-talk, right, to, to bring awareness to what your self-talk is just in the process of getting ready for a training run, right? Um, just notice that. What's it like when you're putting on your shoes, when you're getting ready for the day? Are, are the things you say to yourself positive or negative, right? Are they things like, oh, man, I'm, I'm really tired and the weather isn't great and I just don't feel up for this today? And um, is that kind of leading you out the door or is it full of excitement and positivity? So to start with that awareness, right, both as you're getting ready to go out the door and, and run that day, but also in the middle of the training run, right? What's the difference in your mind between easy days and hard days, right? What's the self-talk? What are the cognitive appraisals you have about what you're experiencing as you're, as you're engaging in the sport? Um, and uh, most people will be able to come up with something. Like, it, like if I asked you, Jason, what are like just that idea? What are some of the self-talk? pieces that come to mind for you as, as you're going through your training? That's a great question. And you're really putting me on the spot here. <laughs> no, that's great. I, I think this is, this is, uh, going to be really helpful. Okay. What, what are some examples of my own self-talk? Uh, I think, 
I think when I am going out for a long run, then a lot of my self-talk is uh, I'm really excited to explore somewhere. So if I'm going out for a trail run somewhere, uh, then I'm really excited about, um, you know, checking out some new trails or, or just really being in the moment in like a great environment here in the Denver foothills, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, now if I were gearing up for a really difficult workout and, uh, I'll think back to my college days because those were the most grueling workouts that I ever ran. Uh, and I, and I know that leading up to some of those workouts, we knew ahead of time what those workouts were going to be. And we were, mm. at least I was very nervous about it. Like the whole yeah. day going up to, until practice at 4 PM, I was nervous because, you know, running five times a mile on the track with uh, short recovery and, you know, your, mm. your coach asking you to run, faster than your 5k pace for five one mile repetitions is very right. grueling and uh yeah. i think my self-talk was um that's a good question i'm not really sure i i was nervous about it but i was also of the mind that this is going to help me ultimately be a better runner be a faster runner be a stronger runner and mm -hmm. i knew that i had to suffer a little bit to get through to my ultimate goals my eventual goals and, uh, mm -hmm. that I think is something, uh, I was usually pretty good at, at getting through a very difficult session because I was so passionate about improving for myself that it was worth it. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's how I, I would tackle those two different, two different types of runs. Yeah. See that, that's great. I think that that really highlights, um, a, a process that most of us experience, right? Easy days or long run days, which may not be high intensity, but just a, you know, significant amount of time can typically be met with some excitement, right? Yeah. I'm really excited to just get outside today and to go explore. And I want to, you know, be a little bit adventurous and where I go and kind of pick a new, new part of town or a new trail and just see what's out there. Um, what a lot of people experience is exactly what you're saying about your college days, right? That anxiety is almost always attached to numbers in the mind. And uh, the numbers could be about, um, you know, running a certain pace or a certain split. Um, or for some people, it is about running a certain distance. You know, people who haven't run a lot before, they're in their first marathon training cycle and they have their first 20-mile run. That idea of 20 miles can loom really, really large in the mind. And so what I see happen in, in that instance is, is you went the positive way, right? Your passion for the sport and your excitement and your ability to connect to that, right? That idea that, okay, yes, this is going to, this is going to be hard and, uh, and it's going to be a suffer fest, but I know that that's going to lead to improvement. Your ability to tap into that makes it, um, you know, makes it approachable, right? Other people who struggle with that, who, who don't see the incentive to going hard or to suffering or who are afraid to do that or aren't connected to important goals are going to have a more difficult time pushing through the discomfort of those harder workouts. And so there, what I see often is, you know, a coach will, will lay something down for them and they'll consistently fall short of that, whether that's short in a split or short in terms of, um, you know, making a 20 mile run, a 70 mile run there, there can become these mental barriers. And they're almost always around numbers. It's interesting. And, you know, during a race, I always found that my most successful races, my fastest races, were the ones where about halfway in, when it started to get really hard, 
I almost had this sadistic um, this <laughs> sadistic frame of mind where I was curious how hard I could push things and I was curious how much pain I could tolerate. And mm-hmm. you know, anyone who's run a five K or, you know, my, my most feared distance in college was the three thousand meters, which is just so fast and so it's it's long enough to be hard, but short enough to be blisteringly fast. And for me, whenever I just like wanted to feel more pain, I, I ran faster. And it was almost like a I just didn't care. It like, yeah, it hurts and I'm so fatigued and I want this race to be over, but man, I feel alive. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's like the razor's edge of this, right? That I think one, that ability to to tap into control, right? Like, yeah, this is really, really painful and uncomfortable, but I can control it and I can actually turn that up. I want to see how hard I can go in this moment. I want to see how much I can experience because there's like the, this amazing feeling behind it, right? This this richness and this sense of, wow, I'm really alive in this moment and it's really intense and it's really uncomfortable, but I can always, I can always stop, right? And I think that's the reminder for a lot of people is the, you can always slow down. You can always stop. It's pushing through and staying on the razor's edge as long as possible that you're going to get something out of that experience if you allow yourself to have that experience. Yeah. And the thing is too, I remember, I, I don't, exactly remember who said this quote, but I think we all have to remember that it's just running. You're not going to uh, inflict permanent damage on yourself because you ran a race too fast. You're not going mm-hmm. to die. It's just race-related pain and fatigue. And, you know, the your willingness and ability to tolerate that is is often the difference between a personal best and not running a personal best. And so I think we just need to put running in, in its perspective and realize that it is just running. We're, we're all going to be okay. Even if, even if you push yourself to the brink, you're going to be fine. And Justin, you brought up an interesting, uh, uh, an interesting point and you were talking about the, you know, walking that fine line on the razor's edge. And one mm-hmm. of the aspects of sports psychology that really fascinates me is this topic of arousal regulation and, mm-hmm. As a, as a layperson, when it comes to this area, for me that that is let's get excited when it's appropriate, but it, let's also yep. not get excited when that is appropriate. Can you can you yep. kind of define that and talk about how how you tackle that with runners? Yeah, no, I, I, it's so important, right? I think um, in sport and, and in life. So just a, a you know a real world example of that. I ran um, a marathon in June with a, a friend of mine, and we were both pretty equally trained. Um, same, same background, same coach. We had the same goals of, of qualifying for Boston, uh, for the first time for both of us. And we we're standing at the start line. It's like two minutes before the gun was going to go off. And, and my friend looked at me and he said, Hey, what's your heart rate? And I looked at my watch and it was 110, which, you know, for me, that's a little bit elevated, but that shows like good excitement and, and preparedness. And I'm like, why? What's yours? And he said, 170. Whoa. Uh, and yeah, and we hadn't even started yet. It was two minutes before the gun went off. And so I think right there, like that shows that arousal, if you, if you don't regulate it and you're not able to bring that down is going to have a major impact. And so that day I ran, I ran a 303, um, and he ran a 313. So, you know, I think, um, not to say that it was all chalked up to that, but that 60 beats per minute at the beginning of the run, uh, led to a, a 10 minute difference in a marathon for both of us. So, 
I just think that that is such a huge, huge concept. Um, and that goes not only for race situations, but also in, in training, right? If we are constantly over aroused when we don't need to be, it's going to impact us negatively. So the, the way I think about that um, is really twofold, right? One of my favorite sayings is, um, you know, we can't change what we're not aware of, right? So it really starts with awareness. So to be aware of ourselves enough to know when we're like hyper aroused or when we're overly excited when we don't need to be and to then have some ability to regulate that. I think the the best way to regulate that really is through, uh, through deep breathing or through mindfulness-based meditation practice. And it doesn't have to be the super intensive, um, you know, long, uh, drawn-out type of practice. It could be as simple as learning how to breathe in a regulated, controlled way for a few minutes at a time so that your physiology and your nervous system can regulate and rebalance itself. Yeah, and I think I think your friend who had a heart rate of 170 beats per minute was probably going through a lot more sugar stores before that marathon even started than uh, than you were. Oh, for sure. Which I'm sure yeah. uh, is not I going mean, to help, was... especially in a marathon when you are desperately trying to conserve as much uh, glycogen as possible. Um, now, this idea of over arousal, you know, I, I think you know if we're in the corral at a big race. And we're really nervous. We can obviously do some deep breathing exercises. We can, mm -hmm. you know, be really mindful of the fact that, hey, it's just running. We don't need to be that nervous about it. But a little bit of nerves, I think, is a good thing. Um, yep. How do you incorporate that kind of mindfulness meditation when you are, you know, on the track for a workout or on the starting line of a race? Is that something that you only do when you're not running or, or can you do it kind of in the moment? Yeah, I think so. I think mindfulness meditation is it's a lot like a lot like training, right? It, it builds on itself. The more you do it um, at practice, the, the better you're going to be able to tap into it when you really need it and when it really counts. Now, you know, if you're running if you're running mile repeats on the track, it's pretty hard to work on deep breathing in that moment, right? You're not going to be able to tap into that. But there are other mindfulness components that you can tap into during a hard workout, which is, you know, bringing this awareness and this presence to how you're carrying your body, right? So a lot of times what happens is if we're, if we're overly aroused and we're running really hard, we will start to carry our, ourselves in a tense way in certain places that maybe we don't need to be. And so like simple things like learning how to soften your shoulders or to, you know, return to that natural gait is going to allow you to, to move more fluidly and uh, perform better. Um, I do think, um, you know, corral, uh, mindfulness, corral meditation at the start of a race is, is really, really important. And basically everybody that I see, whether they're sports performance related or, or not, I talk about doing meditation on a, on a daily basis for just a couple of minutes because it really does regulate the nervous system in a way that allows us to, to function properly. Yeah, I take a couple deep breaths before every podcast episode i think it's uh, you know not that i'm you know super anxious or anything but i think it's grounding and i think just super oxygenating my blood a little bit before i start an interval or a podcast is is going to be yep. a helpful thing for me absolutely i think one of the ways i think about um, mindfulness is if, if you do it over time what you what you learn how to develop is this idea of deep focus right how to concentrate deeply on whatever it may be, whether that's just your breath or just your experience in the moment or just your thoughts. But 
in running, uh, to be successful, you really have to learn how to develop deep focus to be able to carry yourself through that set or through that mile repeat or through that distance in a way that your mind is wandering or in a way that isn't your, your mind isn't getting you off track of what you're trying to accomplish that day. So I think in addition to, you know, mindfulness really helping regulate the nervous system, it really does help you develop the sense of deep focus, which is just, it's so critical to the sport. Yeah. I remember a lot of my coaches in, in both high school and at the college level, you know, they were there for our races. They were there on the cross country course at various points and they're there every lap on the track and a lot of our coaches, you know, they would yell out splits. They would yell out, you know, kind of general encouraging things if you're having a great race. But I, I think what's really telling is that when a runner was having a bad race, they would often try to shake them out of that kind of negative mindset by saying, you know, let's focus on your uh, you know, what's happening physically so that we can get your brain back on track. So they would uh, have us, you know, relax our hands if we were being really tense or carrying tension in our hands or even our shoulders, you know, let's right. drop your shoulders, let's have relaxed hands and let's really, you know, just try to, you know, focus on one thing for the next 100 meters. And maybe that's, I want you to pass one person over mm -hmm. the next 200 meters. And yep. a lot of those really simple things can can just change your perspective on the race and snap you out of a funk that you have, and then you can get back on track. And and that was always something I was very appreciative uh, for, uh, for my coaches. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think when, when things aren't going as well as you'd like, what often happens is then there goes the self-talk, right? The self-talk immediately kicks in and it varies for all of us, but it, you know, it, it's usually not good. It's, it's negative in terms of how we're appraising ourselves or how we're appraising the splits. And when we get into our heads, we're not in our bodies. And so that, you know, this ability to shift focus into really simple things in the body can have a really big impact, whether that's you know, I always think about like, like getting your shoulders off your ears, right? Just bring your shoulders down, relax those. I like that idea of, of softening your hands, right? Just being able to move them a little bit, soften them. The focus gets you out of your head and back into your body. And that can be a really, really critical approach. I specifically remember my high school cross country coach, almost every race, you know, I would about at the two mile mark of a 5k race, he would yell to us as we were running by, it's time to make a decision. What do you want to do? And I yeah. love that because he phrased it in such a binary way. It's either you have a decision to make. Are you going to finish this race hard and you're going to finish strong? Or, you know, are you just going to have negative self-talk? You're going to give in to the fatigue. You're going mm -hmm. to let a couple guys pass you from the other team. And that might be the difference between winning and losing. And yeah. that really just snapped everyone out of their uh, mental complacency late in a race right. and made us a actively choose to have a good race. And I think that is right. a very, very powerful thing for a coach to do. Yeah, I, I think it's a powerful idea for all of us, right? If, if you think about it in those terms, it's a choice, right? This moment is a choice. How are you going to live it, right? And when we're not running... I think it's like that idea of, okay, can you choose to be present focused and mindfully aware of, of what you're up to and be connected to, to your surroundings? When you're running, uh, can you make that choice? Like, here it is. Here's the moment. I can either turn it up and hit the splits and be successful, or I can back down and play it 
safe and, and, you know, probably beat myself up later for it in my mind about what I didn't do. And again, the, the power of choice from a psychological perspective, it's just, it's so huge. If we could cultivate that in every single one of our runners, especially on hard days, to help them learn how to make that choice and help them learn how to appreciate and tolerate discomfort, I think, again, people are going to, they're going to really realize what they can do, um, and they're going to shatter their perceived limits. Yeah. Another thing I remember, and I feel like I'm just sharing old man stories from, from my <laughs> glory years. <laughs> but, when I was in high school and, and really specifically when I was a freshman on the cross country team. So this was the first month or two that I was running. We had uh, a group of seniors who they had a, a line that we would chant before uh, any race. And, and, you know, instead of like, you know, uh, I went to Lexington high school, instead of saying, you know, go, go Lexington or something like that, we would, we would say grimace. Now, part of that mm. is because we stole a cardboard cutout of Grimace from a McDonald's <laughs> after <Nice>. a <laughs> after a, a team dinner. But w the other reason why we said that was because we knew that the race was going to hurt. We wanted it to hurt because we knew that the more we hurt, the better we would run, and we wanted to Grimace. And so it was kind of this. It was all. It was a joke, but at the same time, it was this this understanding that, hey, we're going to do something hard and that's okay. And it really set the stage for me as uh, an impressionable freshman in high school that, hey, this is a hard sport, but I'm surrounded by guys who want to be doing this, who are mm -hmm. encouraging it. And the yep. more that we can embrace it, the better we're going to be. And for me, that was very powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, that the social facilitation of that as well is so critical, right? That we're in this together, right? Here we are, we have the choice and, uh, and let's find a way to kind of tribe together to, to reach these goals. I think that's, it's just so powerful. You mentioned social facilitation. Um, mm -hmm. can you go into that in a little more detail? I'm not, I, I have a good idea of what I, what it is, but I'd love for you to talk more about it. Yeah. So social facilitation, Facilitation theory in sports psychology in, in really simple terms is we perform better when we're um, when we're working with or competing with somebody else. And so um, one of the ways I think about it is um, if anybody if you've ever run on a treadmill at the gym and you look over and somebody next to you or in front of you you sort of make a little competition with them, right? Even though you don't know what they're doing, but that's that internal competition that you make with that person is going to allow you to, to go a little bit harder, to go a little bit further in your workout. Um, and so social facilitation is really important, I think, in terms of like training groups, right? To have training partners, um, to go on group runs occasionally if, if, um, if you're training solo so that you can develop the this connection to other people that allows you to push through limits, right? One of the things that happens when we're working out alone is we, we tend to get caught up in our own self-talk, right? And, uh, and that self-talk can really slow us down. Social facilitation theory basically says that when we're around others, we push through our limits um, in a much easier fashion. That's why, you know, people at marathons, this is part of the reason you see people go out of the gun way too fast. One, because because they're excited and they can't you channel that arousal, but two, because everybody around them has them pumped up and you look down and you've run your first mile a minute faster than you expected and it didn't even feel like that, right? So that social facilitation theory um, can work to our advantage if we apply those principles correctly. 
Yeah, you're reminding me of my 2014 Boston Marathon when my first mile was way too fast and mm-hmm. uh, I paid the price dearly. But you know, everyone yeah. was everyone was doing it and I was facilitated <laughs> socially to not stick and, to my pacing plan. And you, yeah, I mean, and you were aroused, right? That's a big race. It's a big deal. Everybody around you is a beast of an athlete. And yeah, you get that competitive urge and you don't even realize how fast you're running uh, until you look at your watch and you're like, oh, oh that's going to hurt in about two hours. Yep. And it certainly did. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. we talked a lot about, uh, you know, if you are over aroused, how you can bring yourself down a little bit. So if you're, you know, really anxious before a race, how do we manage that anxiety? Uh, mm-hmm. Let's talk about the opposite of that. Let's say you're, yep. you're not super excited to go do a workout or you're not really amped up to run a great race. Like how do we bring, how do we bring our arousal level higher for Mm -hmm. better performance? Yeah. So that's a great question too, right? I think, um, that if you can really tap into doing something bodily focused, that's going to help get your arousal up. It's, it's a lot harder to get your heart rate and your breathing up when you're underexcited than it is to bring it down when you're overexcited, if, if that makes sense. So um, for runners who are struggling with that, what, what I recommend is, you know, before you get out and, and do your run, you do, you know, like a, a brisker warm-up, right, where you do, um, you know, like some push-ups or you do some jumping jacks or you get your body moving. You do something to get the blood flow in your body. But as you're doing that, to then pair the mind with it, right? Right. So you pair the mind with this idea of, okay, I need to generate excitement. I'm getting pumped up about this workout. I'm excited about, um, this, that, um, or, you know, this part of uh, the set today or this aspect of where I'm running. So to do both, right. To get, to get some blood flow in your body, but then to bring your mind, um, you know, in conjunction with that, that'd be the way to help in, in that Sounds situation. Really, really interesting. And it reminds me that, you know, it's, it's really hard to mentally convince yourself of, something like okay let's get excited about something if physically you're not Mm -hmm. doing that so um you know one of the best ways to get more uh mentally excited you know let's let's say you're a speaker and you're about to go on stage to deliver a keynote address what you'll find is that a lot of these big speakers will actually uh bounce on a mini trampoline uh tony robbins does that Mm -hmm. um yeah, Tony Robbins, bounces yeah. on a mini mm-hmm. trampoline. Uh, a lot of people will do jumping jacks or push-ups just to get themselves up physically because they know that if they can get up yep. physically, they'll, their mental state will follow as well. Yeah, and that's – I mean this is where the mind and the body are so connected, right? As, as the heart rate goes up and the sympathetic nervous system goes up, so too does our thinking. Our, our appraisal about the world will naturally change, and that's just – human evolution of the mind, right? And so sometimes we, we can't just do that from a mental perspective. It has to start with the body. So that's why guys like Tony Robbins do that. They get their body and they get their juices and the blood flowing so that they can then turn the mind into that, that positive uh, approach. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Now, we've talked a lot about arousal, even though this is a family-friendly pro- program. Um, let's... <laughs> let's um, Let's go into some of the criticisms of psychology because I know a lot of people think that things like visualization, self-talk, or or maybe using imagery to aid their performance is just – it's too woo-woo. It's too new age. How do you combat those kinds of criticisms? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I think you know at least here in in Denver um, and really over the last few years – 
people have been more and more accepting about psychology as it applies to sport. And the, you know, the first, um, the first reaction I always have to that is, uh, look, we, you have a mind, right? Just, just like everybody else. Um, and if you just pay attention to those thoughts, those thoughts are going to steer you one way or another, right? And so if you don't believe something is going to work, it's called the nocebo effect, right? It's not going to work, right? So if you don't put any faith into this, you're absolutely right. It, it has no chance of helping you. Um, and conversely, if you believe something is going to work, uh, it probably will, right? And so there have been all these studies with um, using psychology in sports to show that, right? Things from anywhere from using compression socks to really helping people believe that that that's going to aid in performance to, you know, more recently using, um, using like beets and, and beet juice powder. Um, not to say that those things don't work. I, I do believe that they do, but they have a, such a powerful impact on the mind, right? So they've done these studies with people that they would say, look, this, we're going to give you this drink. And in this drink, it has this special new formula that's going to boost your performance. And then they test either power output on a bike for cyclists, or they test uh, like a 20-minute time trial on a treadmill. And the people who had that drink performed better, right? They, they believed that the drink was going to help them perform better. They took the same uh, the same drink, the exact same drink, which was just sugar water, by the way, gave it to another group of athletes and said, yeah, this is just uh, sugar water. It's not going to help performance at all. And that group performed comparatively worse, right? And nothing changed. There was nothing in that drink that was different from one group over the other. It was just this convincing um, uh, the one group that it was going to help the performance, and it actually did. So um, for anybody who says that they don't think that the mind has a powerful impact on performance, I say, you know, there's a lot of evidence that suggests uh, the contrary. And especially with coaching, you know, there's this whole idea of buy-in. You know, you need buy-in from your athletes um, because they need to trust you as a coach. They need to trust the training program that you're prescribing to them. And, you know, whenever I start working with an athlete and over the course of a couple months, you know, they're fighting me every step of the way. They don't want to do this workout. They want to run less. They want to run more. And the runners who don't believe that they're doing good training are the runners who, you know, always seem to not hit their goals. Uh, they get injured more often because they're trying to veer away from, you know, what, what I'm trying to get them to do. Uh, and, and I think you can see that in the elite athlete world with runners who have been with the same coach for a really, really long time. You know, you look at Galen Rupp and Alberto yep. Salazar. Uh, you know, they've been together mm -hmm. since he was a teenager. And then you look at another uh, runner like Alan Webb, who bounced around from coach to coach to coach. And now, you know, he had a relatively short career and he is now a triathlete. So he's kind of doing something very different. Right. And, and I think that just goes yep. and speaks to the importance and power of, of buy-in and actually believing that what you're doing works. Absolutely. Trust and belief are so powerful in this sport. If, if you trust the process, if you trust the science behind the process, if you trust the person you're working with, um, it, it's going to have positive outcomes. There's just no way it won't. And then, you know, along with that is believing, right? Believing that everything you're doing is leading to improvement is actually going to lead to improvement. And so I talk a lot about that with people that you have to believe that every single thing you do from uh, stretching and foam rolling and your nutrition and your workouts and your coach's advice is going to lead to improvement. 
the people who really hold on to that and are wholeheartedly, you know, uh, have that mindset, they get better. Yeah. And what it's funny, whenever I believed that I was going to have a huge jump up in performance when it came to racing, um, I'll, I'll tell you this, I was most often wrong. So I most often did not have a huge jump in performance. However, the only mm-hmm. times that I did have a huge jump in performance, I I believed in it and my actions went along with that belief. So I trained accordingly, I raced accordingly, I bought into the training program and and I succeeded and mm-hmm. did really well. But it none of that happened yeah. without first absolutely 100% believing that it was going to happen. Right. And um I think, you know, hitting smaller incremental goals along the way, right? I, I think people, people want the sort of the big and the sexy goal attainment. And most of the time it's a, it's a lot smaller. And if people can focus on that, like just improving slowly from month to month or, you know, from a six month period to the next, if they can hang on to that and see that progress, it really does bolster the belief because, you know, I think a lot of time in the sport, once you, once you've been running for a while, it's a lot harder to shave time off of uh, off of your PRs, and so those goals um, they're still really really important, but they just it takes a lot more work, a lot more discipline, and a lot more belief to start to see those changes happen. I think when I started running as you know fourteen year old, uh, that was a big benefit to me, not just physically because I you know I didn't spend a lot of time getting out of shape as an adult, but one of the reasons why is because I immediately saw people who were a lot faster than me. And I immediately was around people who knew a lot about running, uh, like my coaches and, and a lot of the older runners. And so I was in this atmosphere where I knew that if I put in the work, I would get the results. And so as an impressionable 14-year-old, I just thought to myself, okay, if I, if I run a lot, if I try hard, if I you know listen to my coach, then I'm going to get better. And that's what I believed. And I, I believed mm-hmm. it so strongly that – you know, I didn't take any time off. I ran every single season in high school and college, and uh, you know, I improved significantly over those eight years uh, and also beyond. But I, <laughs> I had to believe that it was going to happen in the first place. Um, now, now, Justin, let's let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, I think. I think what's mm-hmm. really exciting about the potential of sports psychology is in the area of behavioral change. So if there's a runner who can't mm-hmm. seem to run consistently in the morning before work, sports psychology can probably help that person. If you know there's a runner mm-hmm. who has you know all this persistent negative self-talk, like, oh, I'm not a real runner, or I'll never be that fast, I think sports psychology can address that as well. So can you talk about mm-hmm. some of the ways in which runners can use psychology to to directly change their behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think you're right. I think, um, again, across the board in sport and in life, behavior change is fundamentally one of the most difficult pieces um, for human beings, for all of us. And you see it in, in athletes, but you see it in people who are uh, trying to lose weight or trying to quit smoking or, or you know, um, trying to just exercise more. Uh, we are such ingrained creatures of habit that uh, setting new habits can be really difficult. So there's a couple tricks that I use to, to help with this. The first is to actually go forward in time and to set some goals, right, and to be as crisp and clear about the goals as possible. 
And you set those in action and they have to be meaningful. They have to mean something to the person so that you can then work backward, right? So if the goal is to say, okay, I want to run my first marathon next fall. Um, and that's re- really important to me. Here's the race. It's in October. Here's what it is. That means, uh, this is what I need to do along the way. That means I need to start putting into to place an action plan right now. So what that does is, you know, we, when we look further in time, it helps us create habits and patterns that are important now. Now, a lot of people try to do too much at once. They, they try to change like 15 things all at the same time. And that really fails for people. So I, I think incremental change that's done slowly, but that also focuses on what I call a, a keystone or a cornerstone habit is, is critical. And what that is like a cornerstone habit or a keystone habit is like changing one thing, just focusing on doing one thing differently that is going to have a ripple effect in other parts of your life. So you would reference this idea of like, okay, getting up in the morning, right? So that's a keystone habit for people, right? That's going to fundamentally change the rhythm of your life um, in all ways. So you start that really slowly by saying, okay, if I want to, if I want to run in the morning to get ready for that fall marathon, I need to start kicking back my wake up time by 15 minutes um, a week at a time. And I'm going to do that. And when I, when I get up, the first thing I'm going to do then is I'm going to go for a run, right? And I'm just going to slowly increase uh, that amount of time that I'm running in the morning. And pretty soon what people realize over the course of about three weeks is that habit starts to take place and it becomes uh, really common for people to just follow. So the rule of thumb is 21 days, right? It takes 21 days before a habit starts to become consistent. And the rule of thumb is the first 21 days, it's not about feeling great about it. It's not about wanting to do it necessarily. It's just about being disciplined, having the commitment and the discipline to continue following through. And then really what it takes is it takes three cycles of 21 days before that's really in place. So you need 63 days of consistency before a habit is really solid and in a lot of ways, I'm shaking. Now, let's um, maybe I can I can offer a great example here, and you can work with me right now on this. So, one of the things that I struggle with okay. is going to bed at, at at an appropriate hour because I will <laughs> yep. I will check my phone one more time. I will put on one more TED talk or whatever. I will find any yeah. reason around to stay up later. What what can I do to make myself go to bed earlier so that I'm not sleeping in as much yeah. in the morning? So that's, that's a great question. One of the things I hear this all the time from people and my answer is always the same. It's, I, you know, I don't care what time you go to bed. It, that doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is that you get up when you say you're going to get up. So you hold that consistent and you hold that firm regardless of when you're going to bed. So that, I mean, right now I, I'm experiencing that exact same thing. Like last night, I got home late. I, I had a, an event with the Avalanche goalie here in town and I got home late and then my wife and I were doing like Christmas shopping online for the kids. And before we know it, it's really late and um, way past my bedtime. And yet I had a choice this morning when the alarm went off. I could either get up and get ready and go about my day or I could hit snooze. And, um, you know, I got up, right? That's just what I did because I know how, how powerful that is holding that keystone habit firm is more important than trying to go to bed early. So I, I often tell people, yeah, don't try to go to bed early. Just make sure you're getting up at the right time. If you get up at the right time, your nighttime stuff is going to regulate itself. Oh, well, I learned something today. And, uh, 
Justin, I'm going <laughs> to let you know in 22 days if I am getting up at the right time uh, every day. And I think if I do just have a daily alarm set, then I'll be more yep. likely to go to bed if I just know that I'm getting up at, say, 6.30 every day uh, as opposed to yep. eight hours from whenever I go to sleep. Yeah, see, and that's the that's exactly it, right? If you so this morning I got up a little tired, more tired than I would normally be, but getting up at, at that time is going to help me regulate that this evening. So I'm going to be much more likely to go to bed on time, which is going to help me stay in the habit. What what happens for people is, you know, you hit snooze, and instead of six thirty, you get up at seven, which then again tonight you may follow through because you're not going to be tired. Right. So you're checking your phone one last time and then you go to bed a little bit later and 630 comes tomorrow and you're like, yeah, I'm still tired. So you sleep till seven. Right. And it's that getting up behavior in the morning that actually regulates the nighttime behavior. So I would I would focus more on that. That's going to be uh, that's going to be where you find success. Well, one of the reasons why I asked is not just because it's something that I would like to do, uh, but I also think it's something that a lot of runners struggle with because a lot of runners, you know, they have to get up early in the morning to get their run in before they uh, go to work or before their kids get up. So I think it's an important habit for a lot of runners these days and one that, you know, I think we can right. all work on a little bit and uh, the benefits of which Absolutely. are pretty clear. Yep. Here's here's the other tip for runners who run early. Um, go to bed in your running clothes, <laughs> right? Fall seriously. Fall asleep. Um, you know, this time of year it might be a little chilly, so you may not you may not wear everything, but wear enough of your gear so that when you get up in the morning, um, you can just pop on your shoes, have those right by your bed or by the door, and you're ready to go. It, it's you're going to be much more likely when that alarm goes off to feel your running shorts. Um, on your body and say, oh yeah, it's time to run. Then if you're all comfy and cozy and you say, gosh, I don't know where that is. I think it's downstairs in the laundry. Um, that's going to prompt you to, to stay in bed. So those little tips, they really go a long yeah, way. Yeah, and I, I would be remiss not to add, in episode five of this podcast, I talked with Steve Cam, and we talked a lot about habit change and the systems that you put mm -hmm. in place around your behaviors and mm -hmm. how those systems really help keep you in line. So, you know, putting your alarm clock on one side of your room is going to force you to get up out of bed in the morning to turn it off. So if you aren't able to yep. turn your alarm off from bed, then you're going to be able to stick with your morning wake up time a lot more easily. So uh, definitely, if, if anyone's Absolutely. interested in those kinds of uh, strategies for behavioral change, uh, episode five is a great one to listen to. Um, now, mm -hmm. Justin, let's, let's get to a question that we got from uh, a runner on Twitter. And this mm -hmm. one has to do with overdoing it. And, you know, runners, come on, we're type A. We, we love to push the envelope. So, this is a really important question, and it's how do you walk the line between grinding it out and overdoing it? And now we can talk about the training side of this, uh, but you know, I, I mm -hmm. want to talk about the mental side of things. You know, how do you mentally walk that razor's edge when it comes to uh, you know training really hard versus you know mentally burning out? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, um, again, it's a it's a great question, and I think again, it, it really does start. With that awareness piece, I think you're right. Runners, we tend to be a type A bunch, and we are goal driven, and and often those those goals are driven by numbers, right? We're trying to run certain paces, we're trying to run certain mileage or hours per week, and so we, you know, we have runners' guilt if we're not hitting those things. 
And so we can push through times where really what our minds and what our bodies need is a break. And so understanding the distinction between the two is really important for all of us. And so I think if, if people are really noticing that the mental fatigue is lasting several days and there are several days of just really struggling to connect to getting out the door and they're starting to find that their recovery isn't as quick, that they're more lethargic, they're more irritable, they're more tired, um, then it really is time to allow permission to take a break, right? And this this is a concept that's really tricky for type A runners is giving yourself permission to take a rest day. Um, it's really hard for all of us. And yet that has big dividends to just take a mental day off. Um, one day off of your training cycle isn't going to lead to any problems, but overdoing it and causing more fatigue, more stress or, or getting injured, that's a major setback for people. Yeah, And I think we should also recognize when it comes to this particular topic, there's such a close relationship between the physical and the mental side of things. So if you are mentally feeling burned out, it's it often because physically you're doing too much. So, you know, two or three days off is not going to impact negatively your fitness. So take a couple days off. Uh, and then I think when you do start running, uh, and, and I do have to say this question came from Brian on Twitter. So thank you so much, Brian, for submitting it. Um, the other side of this is let's do something different that isn't so challenging mentally to do. So if you're so used to doing your long runs on uh, the same loop course and you know how how fast you normally are at all these various checkpoints, then maybe, like you said, Justin, you know, a lot of this is tied to specific numbers. Maybe you need to get away from yeah. those numbers for a little bit and go for a trail run where maybe, yeah. you, you know, you start your watch, but then you put it on time of day mode so that you have no idea your pace, how long you've been running, etc., so that you can just worry about smelling the roses as you run by and really just enjoying yourself out there on the trails. Uh, I think the variety is really important when it comes to the topic of mental burnout you know let's incorporate a Absolutely. lot of variety into your training and that means running different loops different surfaces different paces different types of workouts rotating shoes all right. of this stuff keeps right. running a lot more um uh you know new it keeps it a little more interesting because let's face it running is pretty repetitive you know if we're just putting our legs yep. in front of each other you know one leg at a time constantly over and over again and when you're taking thousands of steps every day it kind of gets mentally boring um so we have to inject some more variety into our training so that you know we're we're you know staying a little bit more engaged mentally with it as well yeah absolutely and I, again i think that goes for there's a focal shift right and uh, again, we are numbers driven kinds of people, right? And when we're looking at our watch, when we're tired and we see our heart rate or we see our pace, then there's that self-talk that follows. And I think you're right. This idea of um, like running naked, if you will, by starting your watch and putting it in your pocket so you don't even feel tempted to click through, um, you know, the data screens or just putting it, if you have the discipline to just put it on time of day mode. And to not work, like to really give yourself permission to not worry about anything that day and to just run by feel, to run easy, to not overdo it. And to really, like you're saying, stop and smell the roses, feel the surroundings, take a different route, go to a different part of the city, um, run a different direction that all of that is going to really impact your 
mindset and, um, and, and your enjoyment for the sport. And here's the truth. I think if you run long enough, you're going to have to do this and you're going to have to do it repeatedly because this is a, it, the sport can be a grind. Um, and especially if you're trying to hit certain numbers and hit numbers frequently, it's really going to be a grind. I think what's really important for recreational runners to know is that the runners who are, you know, front of the pack, they're maybe they're winning races or they're finishing really high up there. Uh, the, these are runners with a lot of experience. Uh, a, a lot of them have a lot of talent as well. But one of the reasons why they got to that level, they got to that point where they can be, you know, winning races or in the in the front pack is because they know that, you know, running can't be a grind all the time. And in fact, most days of the week, it needs to be pretty easy. You know, even when I look back on some of the most grueling training cycles of my entire life, you know, before I ran my best marathon, I was running, you know, 85 to 90 miles a week. But I was so tired from my long runs and, and maybe one faster workout earlier in the week that all my other runs were pretty slow. So I wasn't really grinding it out. I was running really easy, but I was just kind of out there for a long time. So uh, it's right. an important point, to I think, for, for everyone to to understand and to recognize and also just to know that, you know, grinding it out, you, you should grind out some workouts and definitely races, but your training as a whole should not be a grind. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And training, like you're saying, it involves a variety of workouts. So easy days need to be easy. Hard days need to be hard. And I think what a lot of people confuse is they run their easy days too hard and they run their hard days too easy. Yeah, that's one of the biggest right? mistakes I that I see that, among recreational runners is, oh. is that is exactly what they do. Absolutely. And that's the reminder that that's a psychological framework, right? Like, Oh, my easy days need to be really easy. And there's, there's a biological and a physiological adaptation reason for that. And again, that, that connects right back to trust and belief, right? I have to believe that this is good for my system, right? And I, you know, whatever that takes, I, I have some people, we, we get kind of silly about it, but we talk about like, I want you to visualize and believe that running slowly is helping your mitochondria build in your body. And that's going to help you perform better. It's going to help you run your harder days harder. Yeah, uh, definitely. And uh, I, I think it's also really critical to understand that uh, maybe only 10% of the time, if you're feeling good, should you run faster. But 90% of the time, it's better to go slower. So it's much yeah. better to err on the conservative and cautious side when it comes right. to intensity or increasing mileage than on the aggressive side. You know, there's there's a time and a place to be aggressive, but it needs to be strategic and it needs to be done under the best circumstances possible. Absolutely. It's well said. All right, Justin, this has been really awesome for me. I always love learning more about the mental side of running, and your expertise is really appreciated here. Uh, before we cut it for today, I'd love to hear one suggestion that you have for runners. You know, we're gearing up for the new year. A lot of runners are starting, uh, you know, a training program for a big spring race. Uh, as a sports psychologist, what is maybe one piece of advice for you to give to these types of runners who uh, want to get the most out of their training from a mental perspective? Yep, that's a great question. And I, you know, I think really there's there's two pieces that that come to my mind. So the first one is everything begins in the mind, 
it all starts with the way you're thinking about things. And, you know, even just getting into the sport for a lot of people in adult, right, it, it starts with this idea of, hey, I want to run that race. I want to run a marathon for the first time or I want to run a half. It, it starts as a thought in the mind. And so everything we do in this sport begins there, whether that's tackling a new distance or trying to hit a PR, um, it all starts in the mind. So to be very clear about that, right? And then the second piece is this idea that, you know, whatever it is that you do in training is exactly what you're going to do in a race, right? So if you get to a place of discomfort and you don't learn how to talk through that or how to embrace that psychologically while you're training, you're certainly not going to do that in a race situation. And conversely, if in your training you, you can't uh, psychologically grasp the concept of going slow, that's going to hinder your training in the long run. So this idea of everything you do in training translates to what you do when you need it competitively is just a really important concept for all of us as we uh, as we prepare for the new year. Yeah, that's. I'm so glad you said that because I'm always saying racing is a logical extension of training. And if you've done the proper training, then you should expect a certain result on race day, provided that things you know go go well for you. Um, right. So it, it all starts with you know making sure you've done the right preparation. And if you have, Absolutely. then then you shouldn't be too anxious about your race. You won't have to uh, you know practice too much. Uh, arousal regulation. You know, you'll you'll be, you'll be at the right point on on race day. Yeah, just just don't be at 170 at the starting line. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All yeah. right, Justin. Thanks so much for being here. This was a blast. Uh, I, I know that everyone's going to have fun with this episode. Uh, we really appreciate you being here. Oh, my pleasure, Jason. Thanks for having me, and uh, best of luck to all the listeners out there. And there it is. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this interview. But more importantly, I hope you actually implement at least one idea or principle that we discussed. If you do, please let me know. I'd love to hear how the show is actively changing your running for the better. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. Not every episode is going to have a blog post or email attached to it, so subscribing is the best way to be notified of new episodes as soon as they're published. Thanks again, and we'll be in touch soon.